You're listening to All the King's Men, the official podcast of the Los Angeles Kings. Now, here's your host, Jesse Cohen. All right, I'm recording this. Uh, it's 8.15. The game just ended. And I wanted to record this episode before uh, a lot of the thoughts lost me or uh, or, I, or I forgot what happened in the game. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the specific game because obviously a 5 to nothing loss. There's not a ton to talk about. Uh, the Predators are a good team. You know, obviously they're not so good that you would quote-unquote expect a loss like this, but I'm not going to get too hung up on the particulars of losing to Nashville. Um, they're a playoff team. Obviously they went to the Stanley Cup final. They have plenty of talent, plenty of reason to be uh, to be playing well at the moment. What I do want to talk about is expectations because, as we say time and time again, happiness is measured by expectations, and I'm seeing a lot of people very unhappy um, with the Kings' results lately, and, and that's with good reason. I don't want to say it's not, but I want to talk about uh, the notion of consistency and and where this team, you know, quote-unquote, should be. Uh, I want to take you back to the off season, uh, or rather the last day of the previous season when uh, Lombardi and Coach Sutter were fired and uh, Rob Blake and Coach Stevens were promoted. Now, at that time, we didn't know that uh, Alex Iafalo was going to be able to have a productive season. We didn't know what we were going to be getting out of Adrian Kempe. We didn't know that Fantenberg and Foline were even going to be on the team. We didn't know that Tory Mitchell was going to be on the team. We didn't know that UC Okanen would have a stint. We didn't know about Mike Camilleri. All we knew was that this was a team that had missed the playoffs two out of the previous three seasons. Um, it appeared as if they were hamstrung with a number of bad contracts. Uh, there was rumors that they had tried to move uh, not only Marion Gabbert, but also Dustin Brown and were unable to. And so the question was, what do you do with a team that struggles to score has contracts that they can't move, is up against the cap, doesn't have organizational depth because they traded away a bunch of draft picks and prospects in order to win the two cups in three seasons. What do you do with this team? And so they made a change uh, in the in the front office, and, and whether or not that was the right decision um, isn't what I want to get into um, because while I do think it actually was the right decision, at the time I didn't, and at the time I felt that... that the front office was being punished for an injury to Jonathan Quick because in the 2015-16 season, as I've said before, uh, we had Andre Kopitar win a Selkie trophy. We had Drew Doughty win a Norris trophy. We had Jonathan Quick be a Vezina finalist. We had a team that was a second seed in the division. And yes, they lost in a disappointing first round. But uh, Alex, uh, Alec Martinez had been hurt. They made a trade that I didn't think was a particularly great trade to bring in Le Cavalier and Luke Shen. Luke Shen, not a particularly terrific defender, and, and uh, Le Cavalier, I think maybe at a point in his career where he couldn't really play the role that they hoped he would, that, you know, they they seemed to be fond of bringing in uh, a veteran player, whether it was Jeff Carter in 12 or Gabrick in 14. It worked out those years. Obviously, Gabrick and Carter not as old as uh, either Aginla or Le Cavalier when they brought them in. So anyway, <clears throat> the point is, at the end of the... Uh, 2015-16 season, this was a team that I don't think anybody would have said as many bad things about as they said the following season, and in my mind, the only difference was that in the following season, Quick was injured, and they had to rely, and not only Quick, but Zatkoff as well. So they had to rely on Peter Budai, and obviously Zatkoff was not a reliable backup, uh, even when healthy, and that was unfortunate. Now, you can say all you want about Peter Budai 
um, being a reliable uh, fill-in for Jonathan Quick, and you can say, well, the injury shouldn't have mattered because their numbers were decent, you know, up until a certain point. But I would just point out to you that this season, the season after Peter Buda is a quote-unquote, you know, decent fill-in role, he's played seven games for the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's got a goals against average of 3.8 and a save percentage of 0.878. He's a lovely guy from all I can tell. He did as well a job as could be expected of him in L.A., but I don't want to hear anything about Peter Budai coming in and being an adequate replacement for Jonathan Quick. They fundamentally changed the way they played in front of him. They they spent sixty games putting forth a you know a superhuman effort um, to salvage what could be salvaged out of that season when they're missing Jonathan Quick, and uh, and the result was they missed the playoffs. And so uh, Lombardi and Sutter were fired. So that's fine. So now we move into this season. Like I said, we didn't know that Ayafalo was going to wind up being a suitable NHL player and whether or not you think his best role is on the top line or in the bottom line, or he doesn't score enough. I'm not interested in that fight. The point is he, he has fit in and he has done, especially for how much money he makes. He's been a godsend, right? He is an absolute value NHL player. And the reality is in a league um, with as much parity as there is in this one, you win based on the value you get out of your players. So Alex Alifalo is a valuable NHL player. We didn't know that Dustin Brown was going to have a bounce-back season. And and it's more than a bounce-back season because I'm not interested in points necessarily, although they're tremendously important. You know, Dustin Brown has has revitalized his career, right? He, he is altering the game and having an impact no matter what line he's playing with, no matter what line mates he's playing with. He is out there. He's Dustin Brown, and it's great to watch. And so 35 points in 51 games playing the game that he needs to play, again, you're getting more value from, from Dustin Brown than, than you would have previously expected. And uh, and I think that's important. Last season he scored 36 points in 80 games. This season he's already got 35, and there's 30 games left to go. So we didn't know Ayafalo was going to be any good. We didn't know that Dustin Brown was going to be as good. We didn't know that we'd be getting, what, 14 goals out of Adrian Kempe to this point? I mean, I suppose there was the hope. But, you know, last season he played, what, 25 games, he scored two goals. This season he's played 50 games and he's got 14, he's got 23 points. You know, he's cooled off a little bit, but he stepped in, he filled in for Carter right away. So right there you've got three forwards that you didn't know were going to be any good coming into the season. The reason I bring all of this up is, heading into this season, your expectations for how good this team was going to be should have been pretty low. Um, you know, your best case scenario was probably a wild card team or, you know, maybe a third seed, depending on how the rest of the division sorted out. Everybody thought Edmonton was going to be better. We all thought the Ducks would be better. Nobody saw Vegas coming. Obviously, Edmonton has fallen out. The Ducks struggled because of injuries. The Sharks are about where they should have been. But with Thornton out, who knows how the rest of their season goes. So, okay, the Kings lose Carter for whatever, 45 games at this point or so in that neighborhood. And I think that counterbalances a lot of, of expectations based on now the information that Dustin Brown is decent and I, Alex Iafalo is decent. Um, once you get Carter back, I said this on Twitter, it doesn't solve every problem this team has because a lot of the problems this team has aren't necessarily lineup related. But once you get Jeff Carter back, you know, it almost raises more questions than than it does answer them. But once you get Jeff Carter back, you now have with Ayafalo, I would argue you now have seven 
legitimate top six forwards. And eight, if you consider that Gabrick can fill a role as a, as a top six forward. Now, I think that's probably the biggest remaining question when it comes to the forward core once Jeff Carter comes back is what do you do with Marion Gabrick? Because, you know, best case scenario, he's a top six forward. Um, you don't want, you know, Marion Gabrick playing a checking role. Obviously, he's not going to be out there <laughs> winning face-offs or, or blocking shots. That's not the best use of his talents. Um, is he capable? Will he be healthy enough, you know, to produce if you put him on a top line with Kopitar and Brown? If you do, what do you do with Ayafalo? Uh Do you break up that 70s line? Do you keep Toffoli up with Carter? So there's a ton more questions to be answered when Carter comes back. But those are but they're good questions. They're the kind of questions that you want a team to have. Now, in an ideal situation, hopefully those kinds of questions would be sorted out through training camp. Obviously, in this case, they weren't. We didn't know um, what Ayafalo was going to be capable of. They had Kempe slotted in as a third line center. Um, there was no Tory Mitchell. <laughs> uh, I don't know what they're going to do with the players from from Ontario. So. In the meantime, what we have is a team struggling to find consistency. And I don't know what the answer to that question is. A lot of people raised the point they had probably their best game of the season against Dallas on Tuesday. Why change the lineup? I think a lot of that probably has to do with the dad's trip. You want to give everybody a chance to play in front of your dad. You've got two games to do it because they come home on Saturday against the Coyotes. And so you change the lineup. It's unfortunate, you know, I don't think it was a great decision. I think I would have probably kept the lineup the same after Tuesday night. But do I think that the lineup change is the single explanation for why they play the best game of the season, you know, on Tuesday and they have one of their worst games of the season on Thursday? No, I don't, frankly. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know if Jonathan Quick has a nagging injury. I don't know if it's because of the puck he took to the back of the knee uh, in the previous game against Nashville. I don't know if he's just tired. I don't know if that's any of it, right? I took a look at his stats because um, there were people calling for him to be traded, which is always great. Um, and look, he's had a bad month. I'm not going to sit here and tell you he hasn't. Um, the question is, how much of that month is his fault? How much of that is the rest of the team's fault? How much of that is just luck? You know, that that question needs to be answered. I'm inclined to believe it's not his fault in the sense that he's perfectly healthy and he's just overrated or he's just not good because the reality is he's been around for 10 years now and he's had a fairly, you know, a fairly stable career. He's widely considered one of the better... Uh, the better goalies in the league, if not one of the elite ones, obviously by Kings fans. But I mean, he broke in in 2008, 2009. So he's had a nine or 10 year career. The likelihood that somehow the league has figured him out <laughs> and that this is the end of Jonathan Quick uh, it seems highly unlikely to me. Um, I think what's probably more than likely is he's having a bad month, which has happened to every goaltender in the history of goaltenders. If you look back at, at you know, Martin Brodeur and Patrick Waugh and Dominic Oshik, um <laughs> you know, I'm sure even I'm sure even they had rough months, and it doesn't help when your team, you know, takes games off or takes nights off. And you know, you see this game or the Vancouver game, you know, both uh, both blowout losses. 
what there's not a ton your goalie can do. Now, like I said, Kemper has been playing great and he's got great numbers in support of Quick, just like uh Peter Budai, just like Martin Jones, just like uh Ben Scrivens, just like uh you know Jonathan Bernier, just like every backup goalie. And I want to say I think a lot of that has to do with um with the explanation for for Peter Budai last season, which is when you're playing in front of your backup goalie, uh, your inclination to be a little bit more responsible, to be a little bit more um, aware of what's happening, I think kicks in. And and I think the, the difference between Tuesday night's game and Thursday night's game tonight is sort of telling in that this is what we're talking about with this team. On Tuesday night, they had a backup goalie. They'd had the all-star break off. They'd had that overtime uh, win against Calgary following that horrible loss of Vancouver. They needed points. They needed to get back into the playoffs. They'd seen... Kopitar and Dowdy go and, and shine in the All-Star game. So you get a 60-minute effort across the board, comes up with a great win, and then, and then tonight, I don't know if it's, you know, resting on your laurels or saying, oh, okay, we've turned the corner, we're fine now. Look at that great game. Quick's back so we can go back to, you know, being the team that can win on sheer talent. And the reality is in this league, in this sport, you can't. You know, maybe in games like basketball, um, or, or other ones, you can rely exclusively on talent and you can turn it on in the middle of a game after giving up a 20-point lead or something. But in hockey, where where every team is basically pretty good, um, if you give up a, the first goal of the game, you're already at a deficit. And if you give up the second goal of a game, you're at a huge disadvantage. Um, and if you give up the first three goals and one of them is called back, you know, I just think mentally you're at a, <laughs> a huge disadvantage. So, again, I don't know what the answer is. It seems to me that the coaching staff has a long way to go when it comes to getting this team ready. I mean, ultimately, I think that's the real answer, is that this team has been giving up a lot of first goals. The, you know, they showed the stat of the uh, the goal differential in the first period, or, or period by period, I should say. And the first period is terrible for the Kings. The second period is sort of, you know, slightly positive to the Kings' favor. And the third period is great. Now, that tells me that this is a team that can turn it on and, and come back and, and win these games that they give up a lead in. But it also tells me that it's a team that doesn't come out particularly um, strong and, and sort of amped up or prepared or whatever word you want to use to, to come out and win the game in the first place. And, and, you know, I've pointed it out before. I think the power play, although it's been strong lately, has been a, hasn't been as good as, as maybe we hoped it would be. Um, and all of these things point to, uh, the team just not being mentally prepared or not being sufficiently ready to play in these games or to capture these moments. And I don't think it's a terrible surprise that when you fire a coach who's known for mind games and for being hard on the team, and, and you know, we've talked about it before, they're all smiles this season, they love going to practice, it's a much looser environment. Um, I think it's easier for teams that are coached like that to, to let some of these moments slip. And I don't know what the right answer is, right? Because, you know, obviously when the, when the, you know, the, the mean, you know, uh, coach, whether it's uh, Mike Keene or Ken Hitchcock or Daryl Sutter, right? Obviously at their peak, they get a team to come together as a unit and gel and, and everybody takes one for the team and Matt Green's blocking shots with his face you know, and, and and you're winning a Stanley Cup. The problem is those coaches burn through teams really quickly. Um, and and those teams, you know, make bad decisions 
personnel decisions because they they go with the coach in the front office and they don't they don't maybe recognize talent or uh, or or players early on because they you know they they favor you know older grittier maybe less talented players the whole will beat skill mantra so i don't know what the right um method is i'm inclined to lean more towards that kind of coach just because the Kings won two Stanley Cups, or rather they won the Cup twice in a three-year period, and after 30 years of being a Kings fan, that was really lovely. And so I'm leaning more towards that. Um, the counterpunch to that is right now the Kings have a bunch of players on pace for career seasons, and we see in Kopitar and Dowdy and Quick and, you know, and et cetera, when given the opportunity to shine, these players shine bright and they shine brighter than other players, right? Like Dowdy goes to the All-Star game and, and is Drew Dowdy. And you can see, oh my God, this guy is legitimately one of the best players in the world. Um, same with Andre Kopitar. And if Jonathan Quick had played, I think we would have seen the same from him. So I don't know that you're getting your peak um, <clears throat> buy-in or performance from these guys if you keep sort of hammering them constantly. Um, I do know, like I said, that I think this team needs to be more consistent. I think they need more... I don't like to use the word effort because I don't think... You know, I, I, I cringe usually when I hear the phrase never played the game because I, I don't think one needs to have done something to, to be able to comment on it. But I absolutely do believe that it's not fair for somebody who's quote-unquote never played the game to speak to the effort of people who are currently playing the game. So I don't like that word. Um, you know, Jim Fox talks about it from time to time. The, these athletes care. They're out there. They're trying. This is, you know, it's a job and it's more than a job. It's their, it's their legacy. It's their identity. It is all these things. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to insult them. I'm certainly not trying to question their, their buy-in or their heart or anything like that. Um, but we've all had jobs and we all know that our performance on the job has a lot to do with our coworkers, has a lot to do with our bosses, has a lot to do with what's going on in our lives. And so um, all of those things can be tweaked. All of those things can be changed. And ultimately, all of those things come to the responsibility of the coaching staff, whether it's setting the lineup, whether it's preparing them to come out for a first period, whether it's, you know, writing up power play strategies. Um, so having said all that, how do you evaluate a coaching staff? You know, every year we have the who's the coach of the year question. And it it really never goes to the coach of the best team because we all sort of intuitively understand, well, that's the best team. So, of course, the coach should get a performance out of them. So they're not the best coach. The coach of the year award usually goes to the team that surprises everybody. And the reason that is is because you go, oh, well, we don't understand why this team succeeded so much. So it must be something to do with the coaching staff. You know, this year, I don't think there'll be any, any surprise that George Gallant will probably win the coach of the year because nobody expected the Golden Knights to do well and they are tearing the league apart. So you go, oh, well, it must be the coach, right? It's not that Jonathan Marcheseau was an underappreciated talent previously or that William Carlson was on the, on the, on the brink of breaking through or that, you know, they have a, a lineup full of uh, defensively responsible, never give up kind of guys. It's, oh, well, it's the coaching staff. So when it comes to evaluating a coaching staff, a, a lot of it has to do with expectations, which is what we constantly say. And it's why I constantly bring it up. And so the reason I spent all that time at the beginning of this episode was to say, what did we think this team would be at the start of this season? And the reality is I said it on the, on the telecast. I thought this team would fight for a wild card spot. Or, best case scenario, be a third seed. And if we look at where they are in the standings, that's exactly where they are in 
the standings. Um, there's a lot you can control with your own destiny, but there's a lot you can't control. You can't control how injured your team is. You can't control how injured other teams are going to be. You can't control for things like Edmonton sinking down and Vegas springing up. Um, you can't control for a lot of those things. But at the moment, uh, after having played 51 games, I think the Kings are a plus 16 goal differential. Um, I could have some of these numbers slightly wrong. No, they're plus 16 goal differential. They're tied for um, eight seed for the last wild card spot. They're one point behind San Jose and Anaheim for second place um, in the division. <laughs> so, you know, it's disappointing that they have that they're having this stretch right now. But uh, but as I said after the um, I think it was the Flames game. Um, a bunch of other teams went on winning tears right as the Kings went on a huge losing tear. And the, the next two or three games in the Kings season, I think, are going to be really, really educational as to what we should expect down the road. Because we've got uh, Edmonton and, and Arizona at home. And those are absolutely should-win, could-win, must-win games. They're home games. They're... Um, you know, their bottom of the division opponents with nothing to, to play for other than pride. Um, the dad strip will have been over. The all-star game is over. The bye week is over. There's no more, uh, there's no more surprises or events or, you know, highlights on the, on the schedule. You know, there's one bobble head night. But other than that, uh, you know, I think maybe there's one or two Legends Nights left. But basically, right, they've retired Bob's, uh, jer- uh, not jersey, but they've, they've hung Bob's uh, banner in the rafters. They've given him the, the trophy. They've done the All-Star game. They've done all that. So this is it. This is the stretch run. Jeff Carter skating with the team. Hopefully he'll, he'll be home soon. They've got the Grammy trip. They've got an opportunity to come together, coalesce, show each other, and show us what they can do as a team. Um, and, and the real answer is we, you know, we don't know. We'll find out over the last 30 games of the season. And, you know, obviously I'm hoping the same as all of you do that they make the playoffs and that they, and that Carter comes in and that they answer some of these questions, you know, is Adrian Kempe a third line center or is he a top line winger? I don't know. Is Marion Gabrick a healthy scratch or is he a top line winger? I don't know. Um, you know, should Paul Ledoux be in the lineup? I don't know. You know, he looked great on that on that goal that was set up from Kopitar against Dallas, but that was a whole shift, right? That was a full dominant shift in a whole night that was dominated by that line, that I follow Kopitar to Foley line. Um, but tonight, that line got dominated. So, you know, I, I don't. The answer is I don't know to to all the questions. I do know that the answer is in the middle of a season. You don't trade Jonathan Quick, um, as a lot of people are insisting. You know, maybe you play Kepper a few more games. I'll leave that to the coaching staff. Um, but this team still is, at some level, who they were at the end, at the, you know, on the last day of last season. There aren't a lot of trades that can be made, right? That's why they brought in Mike Camilleri. It was a small risk, hopefully big reward move. It didn't work out. They got out of him. You bring in uh, Yossi Jokinen. Small risk potential big reward, you know, for whatever reason they felt it wasn't working out, they let him go. Um, But you're not going to see, I don't think, any kind of trade. You know, you're not going to see the Jack Johnson for for Jeff Carter trade, I don't think, because because when you make a trade with another team, especially with the way the league is constructed now, 
you're not going to trade. You know, everybody says trade the overpaid, underperforming players. Well, what team on the market is looking for overpaid, underperforming players? None of them, especially when they have long, um, unfortunate contracts. So there wasn't a ton that the organization could do at the end of the last season, and there's not a ton that they can do right now. The best you can do is work with the players you've got, try and figure out how to get the best results out of them, and hope that the rest of the league isn't better than you. <laughs> because like I said, you can't control what the other 30 teams in the league are doing. So, you know, you bring up Amadio, you bring up Ledoux, you bring up um, Brodzinski, and you hope that they fit in. And you hope that it works out. And you figure out, okay, do we want to go with three lefties and three righties on defense? If so, that means playing Ledoux. Is Ledoux's inexperience and, and you know, struggles that you're going to have in a young player worth having three righties and three lefties? I don't know. Is it even that important? I don't know. Is Ajax Alafalo, you know, having that effort, having that going to the corners type player who doesn't score, is having him on the top line, is, you know, is, is that worth sacrificing the scoring that you're not getting out of him? Or would he be better served on a third line with Shore and Lewis where you, you know, you outshoot your opponent two or three to one, but you never score any goals? Like, I don't know um, what the best answer is. I just know that this team, as far as the top talent, right? And and when I say top talent, I mean Kobitar, Brown, Carter, Toffoli, Pearson. Um, I will probably include Kempe in that list now because I think you know at 14 goals, um, I think it's pretty clear that he's he's got if nothing else, speed and a shot, which in this league <laughs> sometimes is all you need. But so those players plus on defense, you know, Dowdy, Muzzin, and Martinez, and Quick. It's clear that those that the top tier players for the Kings are as good as or better than most of the rest of the league, right? You see it in, in the Olympics, you see it in the All-Star game, you see it in the numbers. These, you know, the Kings stars are stars, and there's no questioning that. So the question is, how do you combine them and how do you pair them with the rest of the support players to get your optimal effort? And then on top of that, how do you get them to be the players that they've been in the past? You know, somebody pointed out to me on Twitter that in the past, um, you know, somebody said, look, it's February and the team is sinking and there's, you know, there's no way that they can pull it together. And I said, right, just like in 2012. And the person pointed out, well, in 2012, they fired a coach, they made a trade, they did all of these things that this team won't be doing. And I said, well, you know, I certainly don't think they'll be firing the coach. I certainly don't think a big trade is on the way. But, but look, we had never heard of Dwight King or Jordan Nolan coming into into 2012. And while uh, I've heard of, of Amadio and, and and Brodzinski and Ledoux and all that, we all have because they played some last year and, and because obviously we all pay more attention to the, the minor leagues than maybe we did five years ago. But the point is there's all sorts of opportunities and there's all sorts of things that can change um, headed down the stretch. And and these players, we know they're capable of putting forth that kind of effort. We know they're capable of putting forth those kinds of games. So the question is over the last 30 games, how do you get them to do it? Will they do it? And if they don't, how good are they compared to the rest of the league? The answer is I have no idea. We just have to watch and find out. Um, yes, it's frustrating. It can be it can be hard to watch at times. Um, but compared to where I thought this team would be at this point in the season, I, I'm I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm not thrilled, but I'm also not devastated because this is kind of who I thought this team was going to be. There's a few surprises that I wasn't expecting. I didn't expect Alex or Alex Iafalo. Keep messing up his first and last names. I didn't expect him to be a regular contributor in the way he has been. I didn't expect Dustin Brown to uh, to revitalize his career. 
But by the same token, I didn't expect Jeff Carter to be injured for half the season, um, if not more. Uh, I didn't expect Darcy Kemper to be as, as great as he's been, but I also didn't expect a bad month out of Jonathan Quick. So that's life. There are things you expect and there's things you don't expect. And, uh, you know, what's the phrase? Uh, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. So, look, the next four games, I'll say, well, maybe not four, because I think they have Tampa coming up in the next four, and that's obviously a, a tough game by any stretch of the imagination. But certainly the next two home games and then the coming road trip will really just tell us who this team is. And, uh, look, if they lose the next two at home, I think the likelihood of something drastic exponentially increases. Um, I don't know what that would be. But as I said, they've got two games, uh, Edmonton and Arizona, that they should win. Um, obviously, you'd make excuses uh, for them if if there were little reasons that they lost or if they lost in overtime or something like that. But if they get blown out in either of those games or, or if something you know tragically bad happens, uh, then I don't know. But you know, their next 10 games or whatever, Arizona, Edmonton, Florida, Tampa, Carolina, Pittsburgh, Buffalo... Chicago and Winnipeg. They should beat Arizona and Edmonton. I'd expect them to be competitive against Florida. You lose to Tampa, fine. You should be able to beat Carolina. Who knows with Pittsburgh? But again, Buffalo, you should be able to beat. Chicago should be a telling game. And then, okay, Winnipeg's real good, so you might lose to them. And then again, you have uh, Edmonton at the end of the month at home. So, you know, obviously February is the make or break month. That's how it is for most bubble teams. Um, hopefully we get Carter back by the end of the month. Hopefully the trade deadline brings some sort of uh, hidden surprise. And hopefully the guys they called up perform the way you want them to. Um, anyway, I think I'm done rambling. Uh, like I said, I wasn't going to talk too much about the game against the Predators because there really just wasn't much to tell. The Kings played a decent first 10 minutes, but then they got scored on, and then the game was all Predators the rest of the way. Um, if you look at the shot charts, it's just all yellow, um, and it's no good. And uh, I don't really want to think about it. I don't really want to dwell on it. You know, a 5 nothing shutout. Uh, not a ton to say. Moving on. So, uh, thanks for listening. We will be back at Staples Center Saturday night against the Coyotes. Hopefully that's a win. Hopefully this team gets back on track. Uh, keep listening. We'll talk to you soon.